The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Good morning again. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me, please, to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Does anybody need a Bible? Brother Rick Tolley's over there ready to hand out a Bible. If anybody needs one, does anybody need a Bible? Rick, I don't see anybody. Thank you for standing uh, prepared to give one. If you did grab one, by the way, on the way in, you'll find the text on page 275 is where you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 10. And I've titled this morning's message, Long Live the King. Long Live the King. As I was thinking about this message this week, I thought, you know, Americans by and large are fascinated by royalty, and in particular, British royalty. Queen Elizabeth II has been the queen now nearly for seven decades. Seven decades. So February 6th of next year, less than four months away, will mark the 70th anniversary of her reign. Uh, most so, put that in perspective, most of us in this room weren't alive um, we, at, before she was uh, queen of England. Television, by the way, it was just in its infancy then. I think it was 1953 when she, or 52 when she ascended to the throne. There were an estimated 27 million people just in the UK alone, which was well more than half of the population of the UK that watched her coronation. Um, the Netflix series, The Crown, is wildly popular here in the United States, not only here, but even around the world. I read an interesting statistic this week. In November of 2020, so just uh, a little over a year ago, in one week in November of 2020, there were over 3.3 billion minutes of that show watched around the world. Okay, 3.3 billion, with a B, minutes of that show watched in one week alone. And that's just absolutely insane, the number of people have to be watching that show for that to happen. Season four of The Crown was watched by more people than actually watched the, the royal wedding of Charles and Diana. More people watched season four than watched the wedding. And so royalty is a big deal to many Americans. And to that end, our text today is going to be addressing the cor- a coronation of sorts. But this isn't any British coronation. This is the coronation of the first king of Israel. And so with that being said, let's Turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. If you're there, say amen. All right, I'm going to read 11 verses for us this morning, so it's a much shorter passage than last week. Let's begin in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. And from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God. Who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. 
Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. They inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, that is Saul, he held his peace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And we know, again, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, now in the hearing of your word, that your spirit would accompany the proclamation of your word. And what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us. What we know not, you would teach us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're the note-taking type, the sermon central idea for today is God gives us leaders. God gives us leaders. And we'll look specifically at the God-given leader named Saul today. I have five points for the sermon this morning. All of them brought to you by the letter R. Okay? All of them brought to you by the letter R. First point is rebuke. Rebuke. Samuel starts by calling the people of Israel together at Mizpah, there in verse 17. It's going to be a big day for Israel. Today, their king will be coronated. Before the sun sets, they will have their first king. You can, you can feel the anticipation in the air. Now, I don't know about you, I've never attended a coronation for a, a royal person but whenever we attend a formal event, maybe it's a wedding, a birthday party, an anniversary celebration, or maybe you have been fortunate enough to attend the coronation of a king or a queen, we, we don't expect to hear rebuke at one of those events. Rather, we, we expect something more uplifting. We expect something overwhelmingly positive. You know, and if, if the speaker does have any harsh words of condemnation for those involved, we, we might expect that speaker to share those words privately rather than publicly. And, you know, when you do it publicly, it sullies the whole mood of the event. But sometimes, sometimes it's necessary to speak the truth. Even when speaking the truth may come across as a rebuke. Sometimes speaking the truth is more important than etiquette. In my preparations for this morning, I read the true account of something that happened in the Church of Scotland toward the end of the 18th century. 
Uh, just for a little background, the Church of Scotland is structured in such a way that the higher ups in the congregation or in the denomination they can tell uh, a particular congregation, for example, this person is going to be your pastor, and, and the congregation really doesn't have any authority in that. That's not the way it works in Baptist life, but there are denominations all across America that do work that way, and Church of Scotland is uh, one denomination that works that way internationally. But normally the installation of a pastor is a, is a joyous occasion. But on this particular occasion, back in 1773, many people felt that a grievous injustice had taken place. You see, the, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, that's their national body, had decided to send a pastor to this particular church, even though nobody in that church really wanted to have anything to do with a pastor. And so on the day of this pastor's installation, when that came about, uh, the pastor was reminded by the speaker who was speaking at his installation that over 600 families and all but one of the elders at that church had opposed his coming. Now, that, that's, that's, that'll just bless your heart if that's the way it start, your ministry starts off, right? Um, he was, however, nevertheless installed and admitted to the assembly with a, just a rather terse statement from the speaker. If, if we had been there, I imagine we could have cut the tension in the air with a knife. The whole event transpired without so much as a prayer to bless the pastor. Now again, the installation of a pastor is normally a joyous thing. These are, these are the things that a church marks usually as high water marks. You, you don't typically say things at the installation service that would go against etiquette and decorum. You know, so a few somebody was asking me before the service how did it go a couple of weeks ago when I was at the Brian service. I can assure you nothing like that happened at Brian Arnett's service uh, when I went up there a few weeks ago. But sometimes things need to be said, and that's that's where Samuel finds himself here in chapter ten. Yes, the coronation of a king it should be a joyful event, but Samuel needs to remind the people of their fundamentally flawed reason for wanting a king. It's not that kings in them of themselves are bad. It's the reason they wanted a king. They wanted a king because they didn't want God as their king. And so he reminds them in verse 18 that it was actually the Lord. It was God who brought them out of Egypt. And it was God who protected them from all the countries who were against them. And Samuel reminds them of how great God is. And then in verse 19 he says this, But you, today you have rejected God, who saved you from all your calamities and all your distresses. Now, beloved, those are strong words of rebuke. Strong words. We don't, we don't have kings and queens in our society. So, so let me try to help you understand how, how that might look in our own society. Let's suppose we're, we're um, in attendance at a wedding ceremony. And the groom at this wedding has just last year uh, dumped his wife of 25 years so that he could have a newer model for himself. The groom has asked his pastor to officiate the service. And so we're all sitting there as, as the service begins. The beautiful bride walks down the aisle. The whole, the whole wedding party is up at front. We're in anticipation of what, what's going to be said. pastor opens his mouth and he says to the groom, quote, For 25 years you were married to your first wife. When your children were born, I was there to celebrate with you. When you and your wife had difficulties, I was there to provide counseling and to pray with you. And then he says, but today you have rejected your first wife who gave you the best years of her life. Today you have rejected your first wife who gave you three wonderful children. And today you have said, I want to trade in my old wife for a new wife. Now, 
Admittedly, I've said some things at wedding ceremonies, and some of you know what I'm talking about, that I will not soon live down. Uh, But I promise you that if we had been sitting here at that wedding ceremony, our collective jaws would have dropped to the floor and we would have said, oh, did I just hear what I thought I heard? Did, did Did he just really, did he really say that? Now, while this fictional pastor may have said what was true, and while this fictional pastor may have been even felt compelled to say those words, you just don't say that during a wedding ceremony. That's a conversation you have with the bride and groom before the wedding ceremony, not during the wedding ceremony. So are you beginning to understand how, how strong a rebuke Samuel is giving? I mean, when he says, you know, today I have this against you, he is rebuking them in a very, very strong way. And in Samuel's case, it's not just the destiny of one family that's at stake. In Samuel's case, it's the destiny of the whole nation that's at stake. And so the people needed to be rebuked one more time about their sinful desire to have a human king who was effectively replacing God as their king. They needed to hear that rebuke. Ultimately, however, we know the rest of the story. It doesn't stop them from getting what they want. As I said two weeks ago, we need to be careful about what we ask for. God will often give us what we ask for, even though it's not what we need. But here in 1 Samuel, the people want a king. People have asked for a king. And now God is giving them a king. I wonder, beloved, how do we respond when we're rebuked? How do we respond when when our behavior is out of step with God's Word and someone has the guts to lovingly tell us the truth? How do we respond? Do we dig in our heels just a little deeper? Does our desire to be right our desire to win the argument, does that, does that desire cause us to be unmoved by that loving rebuke? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord give us listening ears when we're rebuked. Listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 27. This is verses 5 and 6. The writer of Proverbs says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. First word is rebuke. Second, our word is recognition, recognition. In verses 20 through 23, the people finally will recognize who their new king is. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through this process they call the casting of lots. We're told in verse 20 that Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. The verses that Tammy read earlier about the selecting of somebody to replace Judas as an apostle. And and there was the casting of lots then in the New Testament as well. What does that mean? What does it mean to cast lots or for somebody to be taken by lot? Well, to use a modern example, casting lots would be similar to, not exactly the same, but similar to rolling the dice. So we might say that Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and he rolled the dice. And the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of raises a question in my mind. You know, why would God's people gamble like this? Why would they gamble on their future king? Why, you know, isn't gambling wrong? And so let me address that concern. First, yes, oftentimes, in fact, usually, gambling is a form of sin, usually. So let's get that clear from the outset. But in the minds of God's people, casting lots or being something being taken by lot, it's not gambling. 
Casting lots is simply a way to determine the will of the Lord. Listen again to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision. So the, the, the decision of the lot, it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the way the lot would fall might look random to us, but for God's people, they knew that the Lord was working through the lots as they were casting those lots. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, this doesn't mean that, well, maybe I can go down to the MGM uh, later this afternoon, and this is a modern-day way of determining the will of the Lord to go to the MGM. No, no, don't, don't go there. That's not what's happening. Here, here's one of the chief differences. You know, we could spend our entire paychecks at the casino and never win. The odds are definitely stacked against the gambler winning. The house always wins in the end. But lots, on the other hand, by their very nature, they're designed to produce a winner. Whenever lots are cast, there's always going to be a winner. Let me explain. Lots are just a way of narrowing down the field. The people would cast lots to determine which tribe. And then they would cast lots again to determine which clan from within that tribe. And then they would cast lots once again to determine which family within that clan. And then cast lots once more, once more to determine which person from within that family. And so do you see it's just narrowing the field is what a lot's doing. And that's what's happening here in our text. Eventually, we're, down, we're going to get down to one individual. We're guaranteed to get down to one individual. So it's not really gambling in a modern-day sense of gambling. But it raises another question. If you were here last week, you remember Samuel's, Samuel's already been told that Saul is going to be the king. So what's the casting of lots? Is this kind of like just a, another measure? Are they just kind of put something forward for the people? Is it, does it really not make any difference? If Samuel already knows who the king is, why cast lots? Well, the answer to that is simple. The casting of lots shows the people that Samuel isn't, or excuse me, that Saul isn't just Samuel's choice. The casting of lots demonstrate for the people that Saul is God's own choice. The lots confirm for the people that Samuel isn't just picking his man. The lots confirm that Saul is God's man for the job. And so they cast the lots. And Samuel's certainly not surprised when the lots eventually do fall to Saul because, again, God is sovereign and in control of this. But in verse 21, after the lots fall to Saul, they begin looking for Saul. You know, where, 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 where is he? They can't find him. In verse 22, they ask God, you know, what, does this mean there's somebody else? Do we need, in other words, do we need to continue casting lots? Find, find somebody else? Because we can't find Saul. But God tells him, no, you don't need to do that because all Saul is doing is he's hiding over there in the luggage. He's in the luggage compartment. That's, that's where you need to find Saul. Now, we might read that and think that Saul is perhaps shy or bashful. Or maybe this is his, his humility coming through. We talked about his humility some last week. But those would be the wrong reasons why Saul is hiding among the baggage. Saul's hiding among the baggage because he's scared. He's scared to death. And frankly, he has good reason to be scared to death. God, God's people have never had a king before. That, that's never happened. He didn't know what to expect. He's not ready. He's scared. That's why he's hiding among the people. But that doesn't stop the people. All right? they, they, simply, they, go, they retrieve him from among the baggage and he stands up among the people. And then in verse 23, we're told for the second time in as many chapters, we're told that Saul is, quote, taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Now, what are we to make of that? That twice in two chapters, we're told that's how tall Saul was. 
you know, although arguably our, well, not our, our, our country's tallest president was arguably, at least by most historical accounts, a good president. But, but we wouldn't think of saying, you know, let's, let's rank our best presidents and then just by, you know, if somebody was six foot three, then they're, they're a better president than somebody who's six foot one. We, we wouldn't think that, right? And so for us reading this story of Saul, it might be a little disconcerting for us that twice we've now been told that Saul is very tall, head and shoulders above everyone else. Now, I'll say more about that when we get to chapter 17. We talk about Goliath, who's another tall dude in, uh, in the story that's going to be unfolding. But for now, this is our R word, recognition. Our third R word is revelation. Revelation. We see this in verse 24. And if we're thinking about this as, as, a, as a basic plot line, this, this story, these verses, verse 24 is the climax of the story. Everything in this story revolves around verse 24. So let me repeat that verse again. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. I want us to consider three parts of that verse. First, we're going to look at Saul's, or excuse me, Samuel's question. He asked the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Him whom the Lord has chosen. If, if you're a sports fan, you've seen this happen. You're super excited about your team's top draft pick. This year, he's a promising young quarterback. He's the one who will supposedly once again return your franchise to its winning ways. He will restore the glory to your beloved team. And so when he gets drafted in the first round by your team, you're singing the general manager's praises. You're singing the head coach's praises that they had the wisdom, the foresight to draft this promising young quarterback. And as long as he turns out to be a bona fide superstar for your team, you'll, you'll continue singing their praises, right? You say, man, they, they were just so wise to pick that guy. But if he, just, if he, if he just doesn't pan out, though, or let's say if another quarterback that was drafted after him, so we could have chosen this quarterback, but this, this one was drafted afterward, if he turns out to be the, the new hottest thing in the league. Or maybe your man, your new guy, he throws more interceptions than touchdowns, or, or your guy gets hurt and he never fully recovers. If any of those things happen, what do we do? We begin to second-guess the wisdom on draft day, right? Did we, did, we, did we really pick the right? Maybe we should have picked that other quarterback instead. Doubt gives way to second-guessing. That's where we're at in this point in Samuel's story. Samuel wants to make it clear to the people that Saul is God's choice for the people. He doesn't want any of the people to be second-guessing later. He doesn't want any of the people saying, you know, if we'd just gotten maybe, if we'd gotten that other guy to be king, things would have turned out better. Here, here's a, here's a newsflash for us all. All of the kings, all of them, to one degree or another, are going to fail the people of Israel. All of them will. And why is that? Because they're all broken, fallen human beings. All of them. And so they're going to fail God's people time and time again. Some of them in more disastrous ways than others. But all of them ultimately fail God's people. And what does that do for us? What does that do for God's people? It's saying, it says to us, 
God has promised a king. God has promised a better king. And it, you know, is Saul that? Is, you know, when you're reading your Bible, you're going, is Saul going to be that guy? If you're the first time you're reading your Bible, you're thinking, oh, God has promised a king. Is Saul going to be that guy? And you read more and you get not far into Saul's story and you go, nope, Saul's not that guy. And then you read about David and you think, is David that guy? And things look really promising for, for some time for David. Is David going to be that guy? And then pretty soon, yeah, I don't think David's that guy. And you read Solomon and, and one king after another, after another, is he, is he going to be the one? And we're just disappointed, disappointed, disappointed. Because all of these kings are designed to make us want something better. Something that's coming in the future. Saul, though, or excuse me, Samuel wants them to know that Saul is God's choice. No second guessing. Saul is God's man for the job. Second thing, second part of this verse I want us to look at is Samuel tells the people that there is none like Saul among all the people. There's none like Saul among all the people. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I began my studies this week uh, and I first read that statement, I made a note to myself. I, uh, what I typically do is I print out my um, sermon text on, on, on eight and a half by 11 paper. And so I can just mark it up and just draw lines everywhere as I'm studying and making connections. Um, and right away, I, I took my pen and I wrote on there. I said, and this is what I wrote. I said, is this a genuine compliment or a backhanded rebuke? You know, is what Saul said, or excuse me, Samuel said, is it a genuine compliment or a backhanded rebuke? Because it can be taken either way. Let me explain. If you're ever traveling through the deep south, so South Carolina, you know, where I'm from, and somebody who is born and bred in the deep south, they come up to you and they say, well, bless your heart. I hear some chuckles because you know nine times out of ten that is that is not meant to be a compliment. All right, it is not meant to be a compliment. That person is not really wishing to bless you in Jesus' name. That's not what they're saying. It's a backhanded rebuke, is what it is. That person is saying, "Bless your heart," and what they're saying is, "You're not really smart enough to figure it out on your own, so bless your heart." That's what they're saying. So when I first read this, you know, there's none like him among all the people. I thought to myself, is Samuel actually? complimenting Saul or is he saying something like you know they broke the mold when they made Saul and thank goodness for that right what is it, what is he saying compliment or rebuke but after my studies after I spent some time looking at that I came to the conclusion I think this is even though Samuel is going to he is going to fail miserably excuse me Saul is going to fail miserably as a king I do believe Samuel is paying Saul a genuine compliment and here's why to think otherwise would be to attribute bad motives to God. After all, we, we've just discussed that Saul, Saul is the one whom the Lord has chosen. And so are we prepared to argue that God deliberately gave the people an incompetent king? Now, that, comp, that, that argument may be made. You know, if we carefully make that argument, I, th I think it possibly could be, but I just don't think the evidence here supports that. And so he says, no, really, there, there's nobody like Saul among all the people. Again, no second-guessing. This is the man that God wants to lead us right now. Third part of this verse I want us to, to see is, notice with me the response of all the people. They shout out with one voice, Long live the King! And what does that tell us? Beloved, that tells us that the people are, they're all in. The people are all in. They're, they're not questioning. They're not doubting. They're excited. They don't know what the future is going to hold for them, but they're pumped up that God has given them what they want. God has revealed to the people who their new king is. 
And the people respond with long live the king. That's our third R. Fourth R is to reiterate. Reiterate. See this in verse 25. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll recall that when the people asked for a king, Samuel got, he got angry with the people. Samuel knew right then it was, a, it was a bad idea for the people to want a king. But the Lord told Samuel, this is all back in chapter 8, the Lord told Samuel, don't, don't be angry. They're not, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, is what God told Samuel. And so God told Samuel then to tell the people that if, if you really want to have a king, you can have your king. But before you get your king, Samuel was, he was to warn them about what their king was going to be like. This is, again, chapter 8, this is verses 10 through 18, if you want to go back and look at it. But you'll recall that the king was going to take, 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 take. Six times in those verses, the king was going to take. He was going to take their sons. He was going to take their daughters. He was going to take their fields. He was going to take their grains. He was going to take their male servants, their female servants. He was going to take a, fee, a tenth of their flocks. And then to make matters worse, of everything he was going to take, he was going to use it all on himself. He was going to use it for his goods. And so now in verse 25, Samuel tells the people the rights and duties of kingship. In other words, Samuel's reiterating everything that the king is going to do. So remember those things I told you back you know, in our chapter 8? Remember those things that the king's going to do? Let me tell you, let me tell you them again. And then just to make sure that you don't forget about it this time, I'm going to write them all down in a book. And he lays down the book before the Lord. Here's the takeaway for us, friends. It's good to be reminded, beloved. It's good to be reminded of why we should make godly choices. And it's also good to be reminded of the consequences of bad choices. It's what faithful parents do with their children, right? You remind your children. You don't, do, you, know, you don't just tell them one time. You tell them over and over and over and over again. Because you love them and you, so you remind them. It's what good teachers do with their students. They don't just say one time at the beginning of the semester you have a paper due on October 8th. They remind their students, hey, that paper is going to be due in two weeks. Hey, that paper is due next week. Hey, that paper is due tomorrow they remind their students it's what godly pastors do with their congregations it's it's a ministry of reminder it's this ministry of reiteration of saying the same thing and saying it over and over and over again i can remember as a parent that we used to get so frustrated as a new parent you got so didn't didn't we already tell our son this didn't we didn't didn't we tell him to do didn't we tell our daughter to do this and then we're reminded that they need to be reminded. It's a ministry of reminder. The Apostle Peter, by the way, uses these words. Listen, this is from Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. You needn't turn there. Just listen. Peter writes, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. So he's like, I'm, I'm near my death as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. 
It's a ministry of reminder. And, and in Peter's case, what, what were those things, what were those qualities that he's reminding them of? Well, if you look back earlier, and we're not going to turn there, but you can, for your own study later, if you look back in the first part of First Peter chapter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter one, it's the gospel. It's the news about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is. That Jesus came into this world to die for our sins, to, well, to live a perfect life, and then to suffer on our behalf and to die on the cross, so that we might have life. Now, Peter's basically saying to them, "Listen, I know you know these things already." Or you wouldn't be a Christian. But let me remind you about this. And if you've heard it a hundred times, let me be the first one to tell you the hundred and first time. And let me remind you. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, I love you enough to tell you the gospel over and over and over again. Not so that we can look and go, what, does he not think we're saved? I'm quite confident that probably some of you in this room aren't saved. I don't know who might. I'm not like thinking, I don't have anybody's name in mind, but just from the sheer, the number of people here, that there are probably some people here today that aren't genuinely saved. But for most of us, I would guess that most of us in this room are genuinely saved. But it serves us as a way of reminder to remember what Jesus did for us. That's what Saul, or excuse me, Samuel is doing for the people. He's reminding them. He says, hey, let, me, let me just remind you about what this king is. Peter, in the New Testament, said, let me remind you about this other king. His name is Jesus. And let me remind you of how your sin separated you from God and how Jesus was the one who was able to restore you into a relationship with God. If you're already a Christian, that ought to then just inflame your soul. You ought to just, yes! Yes, Jesus did that for me. If you're not a Christian, I hope it has just the opposite effect for you. Oh, I need that. I need that. I don't have that, but I need that. It's a ministry of reminder. It's a ministry of reiteration. That's what Samuel's doing in verse 25. That's our fourth R, is reiteration. Our fifth R couldn't come up with an re on this one so this one is rupture rupture our final r is rupture we see this in the final two verses of this chapter so verses 26 and 27 samuel sends everyone to their homes including saul you notice this so even though saul has kind of he's been coronated as king still samuel's the one who's in charge right now samuel says to saul, you know, all of you go to your home including saul saul goes to his home in gibeah but notice this with Saul, we're told in verse 26, that there were men who went with him, men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. I'm so encouraged when I read that. And here's a king who's ultimately going to be a train wreck for Israel, okay? But nevertheless, God blesses him with men of valor, men whose God had touched. This is something, beloved, that every leader needs. A leader, a leader doesn't need yes men, but a leader needs men and women of valor on his side. Every leader needs men and women whose lives, whose hearts have been touched by God. Men and women who are rock solid in their faith. Every leader needs men and women who will say, I've got your back. And by God's grace, listen, the Lord has given us men and women here at PHBC like that. 
I am so grateful to know that there are men and women here that I can trust even during my most difficult days. And those of you who know me, you know there have been difficult days. But praise God for men and women of valor. Saul had men of valor. And he's going to need them because there's going to be a rupture. There's going to be a division, a break in the camp. So yeah, there there are those men of valor who are on Saul's side, but notice this in verse 27. There are also, also some worthless fellows. Worthless fellows who say, how can this man save us? These worthless fellows despised Saul. And this is the nature of leadership, by the way. No matter how well you lead, no matter how well you lead, there's always going to be a certain contingent that despise the leader. Think, I, I, could, I would have made a better decision on this case or that case. But let's remember, for Saul, you know, how long has he been serving as king? One day, right? One day, and he already has people who despise him. Already has people who despise him. Why, why are people despising him? He's only been there one day. Maybe they're despising him because he hid among the baggage and they think, you know, he's a coward. But it, it, that's the only reason I can possibly come up with. It, it, he hasn't made any other decisions that they would despise him for. But the sad truth is, sometimes you don't have to do anything for people to despise you. Sometimes people can just be mean that way and despise you. Saul found himself in that situation. There, were, there was a rupture. Men of valor on the one hand who had Saul's back and worthless fellows who despised him and brought him no presents. Now, let me ask this question. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? Are, are you, do, do you say, Lord, Lord help, me, help me to be a man, a woman of valor? And it's not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that with respect to me, okay? But to, and as, as I said last time, I'm not always going to be the pastor here. And there are, there are times in my ministry here when I've been dead wrong and make decisions that I've made, okay? And so I need people that would tell me that. But we also need to be careful that as, as God raises up leaders, do, do I want to be the kind of person that's going to be a blessing to that leader? As, as these men of valor are? Or do I want to be the type of person who's going to be a burr in their saddle? A despicable man. A worthless fellow, as the Scripture calls him. Where do we find ourselves in that category? A king has been coronated. As I said earlier, that king is ultimately he is going to fail the people. He'll fail them miserably. But all of that to point us to a greater king who's coming. Do you know that greater king who's coming? His name is Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this day and for Your grace, Your kindness to us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we live our lives openly and honestly before one another, that You would help us to be the type of men and women that we need to be for, for Your kingdom's sake. Lord, I pray that You would help us to love well, 
to serve well. Help us to be the kind of people, Lord, that ultimately bring honor to the Gospel through our lives. Whether it's in the home, in the church, in our workplaces, wherever we might live, help us to love You well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.